Hi, and welcome to this podcast. Today we talk with Waffles, one of the podcast co-hosts of Waffles and Mario Talk About Things. Waffles is a trained actor. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that's very close to his heart. As you know, I talk to scholars, students, academics, amateurs, authors, podcasters, and so many more. When somebody is passionate about their topic, it makes it that much better to hear them talk about it. And you might have noticed that the podcast name has a Canadian twist, and not all topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now, it's time for a very different type of history, eh? Today I'm talking with Waffles. Welcome, and if you can present your topic, I'd appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. My topic, which I will be trying to uh, present today, will be the succinct history of improvised comedy in theatre, uh, starting all the way back with the invention of theatre by the ancient Greeks with the Dionysian cult, all the way up to a guy called Keith Johnston, who is a Canadian improviser who... Uh, invented modern theatre sports. Um, so we'll be running the gambit today with some uh, interesting characters and some interesting topics on comedy and history. That's excellent. And I love how you're sticking the Canadian in there. So much appreciated. <laughs> I thought might as well stay on theme. <laughs> yes, yes. The first question I have is kind of slightly related, but not. Um, can you explain how you have your name as Waffles? That's such an interesting name. I mean, it's a great food. So, you know, we can start there, but... <laughs> Well, it's actually surprisingly enough nothing to do with the food at all. I mean, I've been interested in theatre from a young age. I was birthed on the stories of the ancient Greeks, and theatre was a massive part of their culture, so it's always been something that's interested me. And so my high school that I went to ran a lunchtime improvised group. And so you'd go and you'd eat lunch and watch other kids perform and then have the opportunity to perform yourself if you were to be so keen. And so as part of that, I would talk a lot. So I was uh, quite nervous as a kid and still am today. But um, I would tend to ramble or waffle on. And so naturally, people start calling me Waffles because my actual name is Alex, but everybody was called Alex. In fact, I don't think I've ever been in a classroom that didn't have another Alexander in it. And so Waffles was a good point of distinction. It's a bit of a fun name, and it does start a conversation. And so since the age of 16... I've been called Waffles, which is about half my life. So that is where the name comes from. That's a really fun story. Uh, it's so funny how a childhood nickname can really stick by and it becomes our identity later on. So that's really great. Yes. It seems also a bit of uh, nominative determinism of, you know, what you're called sort of determines what you are. So Yeah. I mean, if you had a serious name, maybe you wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> Uh, possibly. <laughs> Although I don't think I ever could have held down a serious name. It's not in my nature. No. <laughs> okay, so I guess now we can jump into the topic. So you've already mentioned the Greeks. Did you want to start there? Yes. Well, I might as well start at the very beginning. As Julie Andrews says, it's a very good place to start. Um, and so we start with this Greek god called Dionysus, who was the god of wine and theatre. He was a bit of a rebel in his day and a bit of countercultural. But to start uh, part of his religious festivals, there would be storytelling. And so naturally, a priest of Dionysus would come up and start telling stories. And uh, they called this the protagonist. Uh, and eventually, there was a second person, a second priest, who would come up and they were the antagonist. And that's often they would be presenting the opposing point of view. And so you'd have the for point of view and the against point of view, the pro and the anti. And there was this very famous priest in the sort of 6th century BC who was called Thespis, who was one of the first protagonists. And he started interacting with the audience in such a way that they uh, soon actors started calling themselves thespians or ones of who were imitating Thespis. And so a lot of times actors will be called thespians all the way from this ancient tradition of Thespis, this Greek priest of Dionysus, interacting with the chorus. Uh, and so this is sort of uh, the birthplace of Western theatre in, in particular, and it would go on to inspire other cultures. 
But of course, that's a whole other topic and we're not really getting into it. Of course, we're getting into improvisation. Uh, and of course, the first people to start improvising, which I just for people who don't know, is to do theatre without a script. It wasn't pre-planned, wasn't pre-written, but, you know, scriptless theatre. So improvisation actually started with the Romans. So Roman theatre being quite different than the Greek, inspired by the Greek, but uh, really being inspired by a lot of different cultures like the Etruscan cultures and other cultures on the Italian peninsula. And so the Romans started doing this thing called the Atalan Farce, uh, which was a religious festival, as a lot of these sort of ancient things were. Uh, but this was about the you know 300 BC, so quite a bit later after Dionysus. But this was a competition to a degree of, you know, who was the most entertaining. But as part of this Atalantian farce, one of the rules was that you couldn't write stuff down, that you weren't allowed to go in with a script. And so they started just making stuff up on, on the spot, which is sort of the heart of improvised theatre. Uh, and of course, the Romans had quite a golden age, but eventually they collapsed and didn't have a good time of it for a while. And so theatre in the Western world particularly, uh, you know, went into a bit of a slump with the Dark Ages, as most things. There were still a few religious places who would hold on to it and, and start doing some stuff. But where I would like to pick up is with the Renaissance, as you go after the Dark Ages, we now have the rebirth Renaissance. And there's a particular figure in the history of improvisation who is a particular hero of mine and someone who I don't think is talked about enough in history circles, but somebody called Isabella Andrini. Now, she was born in 1562 in Padau, which is in Italy, and she was born to Venetian parents, so she was a, a Venetian. But she was part of a traveling group that was called the, now this is an Italian, so I'm probably going to butcher this, the Campagna di Comese della Gossi, which roughly translates to the zealous ones, which they were going after fame quite zealously. But she was a poor peasant when she was born, but somehow she managed to get herself a classical education. Uh, and by the age of 14, she was hired by this group. Now, she would be performing a lot of scripted comedy. These were, you know, professional comedians. They would tour around Europe. So they'd go around Italy and France and, uh, you know, other places wherever they were, you know, contracted to by the local royalty to perform. But she brought improvisation into it. She was one of the first people in the sort of modern-ish era to start going off book. And, you know, naturally her being a female, she was cast in the role of prima donna. And so it's this style of theatre where we get the term prima donna from. Uh, and so she would, on stage, start bucking the trend and going against the grain and being crazy and just making stuff up as she went along, playing with the power dynamics, playing off the other actors. And so before we would, you know, rehearse and have scripts and, you know, meticulously learn the material, she would just be on the stage. And of course, as an audience, you would be quite familiar with the plays that were being performed. You would go you know, and see people performing specific plays that you know, have specific scripts that actors would perform in a specific way. But to see somebody taking on these you know, traditional roles and experimenting with them and expanding them in, in such outrageous ways, uh, you know, it was quite this sort of breath of fresh air to the industry. And so... She married uh, this uh, fellow actor called Francesco Andrini, which is where she gets her last name from. She had seven kids with this guy. And so she was a working actress touring Europe with seven kids. Uh, so she is just one of my idols, somebody who I would love to aspire just to have, you know, the brazenness and the courage uh, to do what she did. Uh, you know, she was performing in front of um, King Henry III of France. She was performing at uh, famous weddings, uh, such as the wedding of uh, Fernando Itil de Messici and the, uh, you know, the Grand Duke of Tuscany at the time uh, to his wife, Christina Lorraine. And so she's, you know, performing at these, you know, weddings of dukes and she's performing in front of kings, you know, off book with no script, you know, in front of royalty, just making stuff up as she went along. Uh, you know, and really was the 
birth of improvisation. And so after her, you know, just comes group after group after group of people just going off book and creating their own material on on the fly. Uh, and so she sort of starts this, you know, renaissance, as it were, within the acting community of uh, improvisation. She unfortunately dies only at the, you know, quite young age, L42, uh, to a miscarriage of her eighth child, um, which, you know, quite a tragic event, quite, quite sad for her. But she has left such this cultural impact on the world. We probably wouldn't have improvisation without her. You know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without her. And I just feel that she's a figure that if I can bring her up in a historic sense, I will. And so, you know, that was her life. I would recommend more people look her up. But what I would like to come to is, you know, eventually, you know, theatre continues to evolve and develop until in the year 1933 in Devon, England, is born Keith Johnston. Now, Keith is a figure that I didn't really know a lot about until recently. Born in England, studied theatre, but hated it. It was this rigid, controlling structure that he just felt was too confining. And he just felt like he couldn't be himself in. And so he learns as much as he can in England. But then in 1970, he moves to Canada. And specifically, he moves to Calgary, Alberta, where he founds the Loose Moose Theatre Company. And of course, he, you know, does a lot of his work. Canada, from what I've heard, is a much more relaxed society. Well, that's what he found uh, in particular. It's a lot looser, especially in terms of its theatre scene. Whereas before in England, he was sort of doing improv underground. It was a bit more edgy. It was a bit of a sort of secret that he had to hide. In Canada, he can now suddenly be teaching out and open. He's taking on students. He's, you know, developing all these improvisational forms, including if anybody knows anything about modern improvisational theatre, this is the guy, this is the father of theatre sports. And so most, uh, you know, theatres that I'm aware of, if they're running improv, they'll be running theatre sports, which is kind of contradictory, a you know, a bunch of rules around how do you improvise, but it's a whole bunch of games that that he developed in sort of a quote unquote competitive sense of you know having actors playing off each other and usually will involve an MC who will be you know performing the role of the judge. It's interacting with the audience, getting suggestions, proving that they're not scripted. You know, if the audience tells you something and then you do it, you know, you can't really plan for that ahead of time. And so this is something that then sort of spread far and wide and he starts teaching people and then eventually get this company called Second City in Chicago, which takes up the mantle and they start working on improvisation and they start, you know, playing with it. And so what you'll find is that a lot of famous American comedians will have gone through Second City or be taught by somebody who went through uh, Second City. Yeah, it's, it's sort of quite fascinating that... You wouldn't have modern comedy, as it were. You know, people like Mike Myers, like he goes to Second City. He learns his comedy and improvisation. He gets to start on Saturday Night Live, which was started by people who, you know, were alumni of Second City or, you know, inspired by the work of Keith Johnston, who, you know, was just looking for a way to have fun with theatre, to be acting and to be free. And so, yeah, uh, so that is kind of me running the gambit all the way from Dionysus getting drunk and inventing theatre up until the modern age of current comedy in the Western world. That's quite interesting. It's not something that you would really think because you're jumping from the Greeks who seem to have more of a structured theatre, as you mentioned. Yes, it was, it was religious festivals. And so it was very organised and was to do with the worship of the gods, specifically Dionysus. And then, you you know, you have to wait quite a few hundred years before we hit Isabella and her changes in, you know, the theater world. And then it seems like we have to wait a few more hundred years <laughs> until we can have the next gentleman, right? It, it seems as though the, the progression was very slow in adopting these measures. Was it maybe more personality? People had a harder time doing improv or, you know, what's your theory on that? My theory, and this is just me conjecturing, 
it's probably much more to do with cultural impact was that especially among the theater world you know scripts are important we like to be able to analyze them and for actors particularly because i come from a theater background i am a you know officially trained licensed actor in new zealand and so when you're developing a character it helps to go off the script and to you know rehearse and to play off the other actors and so to be able to go off that and to be able to experiment and to be able to develop characters without the need of a script without the intelligence and forethought of a writer it's quite risky and so but also you're not quite sure how the audience is going to react to it like say if you're doing a Shakespearean play most audiences are familiar with what they're going into they understand roughly what they are going to see and so they can judge accordingly whereas improvised you know you're off book it's could end up badly like you could end up the audience absolutely hating it which is a possibility and so it's riskier and it's something that I think does take a bold personality and so what I think you you see is that it has probably always existed through society but it's always been small and underground and not really talked about up until the modern age and you were talking about Isabella and her ability to do improv do you think that yes. it would have been easier for her to do it alone yeah so I should probably go a bit more into um the Italian comedy at the time. And so there would be troops of about 10 to 12 actors who would tour around performing plays, but they would often have uh, consigned roles. And so they would usually only stick within their lane. It was very heavily typecast, but usually because the troupe would travel and work and live together, they would get to know each other quite well. So I'd imagine that with Isabella, when she starts improvising, she's forcing the rest of the troupe to improvise with her. So before this, there was actually a um, her rival, which was a other lady called Victoria Pissimini, who was the prima donna before her. And so they'd been working with this other prima donna, doing the plays, performing around the place, performing to roughly sort of the same audience. But when our girl comes in, when Isabella comes in, she brings this fresh new dynamic. And so the group would then have to evolve around her and her style if they're on stage and she's improvising they can't stick to the script because they don't know what she's going to do and so they now have to start coming up with stuff and so by her being so brazen and putting herself out there and she would do stuff like she would like tear her clothes off and she would start stripping on stage like really radical things and so the rest of the group in order to keep the audience entertained and in order to keep the performance lively and gripping and engaging for the audience because this was their livelihood if they couldn't book audiences they wouldn't eat and so in order to keep it entertaining they had to go with her and improv is a lot of a lot like that it's a lot of instead of a singular performance really focused around the group and if the group can come together and start reading each other's cues and start picking up what the other performers have put down it can really create this atmosphere and really create this ambiance it can really draw the audience in and engage them in such a way that traditional theater can find quite lacking but it's really depends on the relationship of the group and how well the group trusts each other and how well the group can work together and read each other's cues and so what she would have been doing is you know not just radical for herself but radical for the entire troupe and of course, you know, after she starts this, other troops throughout Italy and, and Europe start picking this up and start performing it to various degrees, which is, you know, how the sort of form sort of continues up until the modern age, but it's still dwarfed by the, you know, magnitude that was the scripted theatre, things like Shakespeare and Chekhov and these masters of the industry. You know, you don't talk a lot about the improvisers, you more talk about the writers and, and the directors. So for somebody who might not have a theater background like me, <laughs> I appreciate you clearing up a lot of things right now. So do you mind sort of going through all of the differences and all of the, maybe the similarities? All right. So I think like, first off, the common misconception that improv has to be comedy. It doesn't. Improvisation just means without script. It's most often performed as comedy. Um, but if you wanted to, you could do improvised drama, improvised horror, yeah, improvised 
whatever, pick a genre, you can improvise it. It just happens to lend itself particularly well to comedy. And of course, a lot of the rules of comedy, you have, you know, the rules of three, you have, you know, set up and punchline, you know, comedy is quite subjective to a lot of people, but there are sort of rules that have been developed over years. Of course, starting back with, let's go all the way back to Dionysus and the Greeks, you had comedy and tragedy. Tragedy were, you know, the sad, they were catharsis, they were a ways of the population to you know, get out their emotions in a safe public way. And then you had comedy, which was just a catch-all term for everything else. But eventually comedy develops into, you know, being funny, being something that makes people laugh. And uh, so you see, you know, Shakespeare, he has, you know, his histories and his dramas and his tragedies and his comedies. And so, you know, when it was on the playbill, you would see comedy, oh, this is entertaining, this is light, this is making me laugh. So with improv, it's a lot more free. Often comes across as comedy. It often lends itself to people wanting to have a bit of fun, wanting to be a bit more free. Uh, it often comes at the expense of the audience. So the thing about improv is that in traditional theatre, in scripted theatre, there's what we call the fourth wall, which is where the audience sits. And so it's this awareness that the audience has going into it that they are not a part of the show. Is, is that they are watching performers on stage. There is the, you know, suspension of disbelief. With improv, that fourth wall is shattered. There is no fourth wall. The audience is fair game because you're playing off them. You're getting suggestions from them. Oftentimes, the shows will start with just the MC performing to the audience. You need the audience engaged. Uh, so very much like a, a pantomime in improv, you encourage cheering, you encourage booing, you encourage reaction. Whereas with traditional theatre, you don't want the audience reacting. You want the actors to be able to focus on their work and you want the audience engaged, but not necessarily reacting, which is with improv. It's all about the audience reaction. It's all about getting a rise off the audience because that's the improviser's mark of success. They know, oh, the audience got a rise of this, so I will keep doing this. Oh, that didn't sit very well. We'll avoid that. And so I think improvisation in particular is more about the audience than scripted. Scripted is more about the actors, whereas improvising is more about the audience. I would say is that's my definition. Probably other actors would disagree with me, but as I say, it's a very subjective topic. So you probably get different answers depending on who you asked. But you're asking me, so that's my answer. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. I want your answer. So since you mentioned you are theater trained, have you done sort of a mix of theater and then comedy and improv? What were some of the challenges perhaps you've come across? As I've been acting since I was probably about 10 years old. And so started off doing children's productions naturally. A lot of pantomime. Uh, it wasn't until, as I said, I was in my teens that I first learned about improv first started getting into it as an art form and then in young adulthood uh you know when I was first thinking about what I'd do as a career I decided that I would go up north uh, so I live in Christchurch New Zealand which is in the South Island but in Auckland is where you get the which is in the North Island that's where you get the you know majority of your acting schools um, between Auckland and Wellington our capital and so I went up to Auckland found an acting school there and that's when I, you know, I sort of officially learned acting. And I think to the layman, to, you know, most people, acting is just about, you know, performing. It's about being a character. It's about, you know, learning your lines and, you know, saying them and waiting for your turn and someone else says their lines and you respond. But when you actually really get into it, it's it's about connection. It, it's about being in the moment. It sounds sort of quite philosophical, of being present and being aware. But in order to convey a character well, in, in order to be convincing in your portrayal, it's about motivation. It's about an understanding of the character. And so in order to understand the character, you have to understand yourself and understand what your reaction would be and understanding how that differs from the character's you know, reaction and motivations. And so in order to be able to portray people well, you must understand yourself but also understand other people I think as one of my teachers put it that an actor's job is sort of almost like the psychiatrist it's about understanding humanity and then being able to mirror that back to people and so that's of course a massive challenge of how do you look at somebody 
and understand what they're thinking? How do you look at somebody's actions and sort of be able to determine the motivation behind that? How do you take a script of something that is just words on a page and how do you bring that to life? How do you be able to stand on stage and perform or stand in front of a camera and perform in such a way that the audience is no longer aware of you as a human being, but more as you as the character. If you were portraying a king, oh, you don't want them thinking, oh, this is an actor playing a king. You want them thinking, wow, this king is really mean, or this king is really benevolent, or whatever it is that you're portraying. And so that's the real challenge, is to be both disingenuous and authentic at the same time. Like you're aware that you are not the person being portrayed, but then you also have to be aware that the person you're portraying is an authentic characterization, that they are, you know, a person with their own personality, with their own backgrounds. You know, one of the first questions that you're told to ask when analyzing a script is what was my character doing just before this and what will they be doing just after it? They don't just exist for the scene that they're on stage for, but they are a fleshed out individual who exists beyond the script. They exist beyond the world of the stage. And it's about understanding that and conveying that to the audience. And that I think is what really, in my opinion, determines what's a good actor from a bad actor. As a bad actor will just be reading lines, whereas a good actor will be disingenuously authentic to, to the character that they are portraying. That's a great way to say it, disingenuously authentic. So to carry on this idea of believability, to put that into the improv, how do you prepare this character? In my experience, most improvisers will have a range of characters that will almost be like mannequins that they can dress up and utilize in different ways, whether that's uh, mannerisms, whether that's accents. They will have a whole toolbox full of different methods that they can use to portray a character. And so when they're improvising, it's about understanding the tools at your disposal, understanding the methods uh, in your repertoire. And so if you say, uh, given the scene, say of a butcher shop, whatever your understanding is often impulse. So whatever your first initial impulse as a butcher is, that's what you will hold on to. That's what you will suddenly go on to. And you will then start crafting the character on top of that. And then depending on how the other improvisers on scene will react to you and talk to you, then you're building layers on top of that. And as you are reacting and conversing with the other actors on stage, they will be building layers to their characters as well. And so it's not about going in with a fully fledged idea of who the person is, but it's allowing the person to be adaptable and you know, be able to change in the moment that suddenly they're revealed that your character is a serial killer. Suddenly now you're a serial killer. You can't deny that, but you have to go into it and say, well, yes, well, I've always been that. Haven't, couldn't you tell? Or as if your character is suddenly now revealed to have been in love with another character, you have to jump on that. There's a philosophy in improv called Yes And, which is about accepting of the situation and adding to the situation. And so... It's about having enough in your toolbox of understanding humanity, of understanding characterization, of understanding the dynamics at play in, in the world and professions in you know, people's lives and relationships that you can then pull out and utilize to develop these characters on stage. And so the best improvisers will have the largest toolboxes. They will have you know, so many different methods that they can pull out and then they can have fun with and explore and be, you know, what if I combine these two characteristics that nobody will often combine before and how will that change the dynamic? And of course, you can have a lot of fun with it and try to surprise the other actors and try to trip them up while they're also trying to trip you up at the same time. Give them offers and give them suggestions on how they can utilize their characters in different ways and seeing how they run with that and seeing how they play with that. And so it's not about having these preconceived notions going into it, but it's about being flexible and fluid in the situation and being able to react as the dynamic change. And so the best improvisers are always reacting. They're, 
they'll be setting things up that they would like to do, but also being aware of what the other people on stage are setting up and being aware of how the audience is going with it. If the audience doesn't like you, then lean into that. Be the most dislikable that you can't that you can be. It's about taking things to the extreme. It's about just being present in the moment and allowing yourself to go with whatever happens on stage and understanding that yes it's just it's just performance is that nothing's permanent and it's sort of beautiful in its impermanence being able to just say yes whatever happens happens and we just go with it and we allow it to happen it's got no consequences we could kill everybody on stage and the next scene they're all alive again it doesn't matter but having fun with it and allowing the audience to have fun with it as well so I'd say that's the real sort of key to improvisation. That's the real challenge of improvisation is being flexible and allowing yourself to just throw out any ideas that you would have had going into it and just saying, you, you know what, I am this and this is who I am for the next five minutes. And then after those five minutes is done, just taking a deep breath and letting it go and going on to the next thing. I guess when you're looking at theater and you're looking at, let's say, a comedian, um, like a funny comedian, do you think that the improv adds value to those arts, whether it's movies or theater or whatnot? And in which way have you seen it used that was sort of surprising or interesting to you? Oh, I'd say that improvisation is good shorthand uh, for allowing actors to connect with each other. So even if they have the script, even if they understand what they're going to say and what the dynamic of the scene is, allowing them to improvise in the characters that they're meant to be betraying gives a good sort of shorthand to the understanding that they have of the character and allows the other actors in the scene to be able to say okay that's how they have interpreted this character and this is how I've interpreted this character and it allows them just to start developing the bond and connectivity that you really need in order to be authentic and so just trying to think of some real world sort of examples because I, th I think like it's also even just as a backstop it, it just as a safety net of if you're on stage or if you're in front of an audience if you're performing and you forget your lines you don't want to freeze you don't want to think oh no I forgot my lines I've stuffed up I've I've you know ruined everything but if you can improvise and if you can sort of understand who your character is you can understand the scene you can improvise your way out of it but also I think for a lot of performers a lot of comedians in particular especially you know people like stand-ups if they're doing a, a monologue something like that if you have this whole wealth of information that you know roughly you want to be talking about or this is a funny concept this is a funny concept improvisation is a great tool of really working that and finding the gold within the topic yeah and so if you can sort of think well okay there's something funny here but I don't know exactly how to get to the comedy here. You can sort of improvise and work it and say like, no, that wasn't funny. That wasn't funny. Oh, there's something there. Let's try going down that vein and working that. And so it's a good developmental skill, even if it's not used on stage, even if it's not in front of the camera per se, it's a great way of developing that. Um, I think as Harrison Ford once said to George Lucas, you can write this stuff, but you can't make us say it. And so and be able to sort of take a script and say, well, that's bad, that's rubbish, but understand roughly what you're getting at from the scene and be able to improvise around it. Uh, so the whole famous, you know, I love you, I know scene in Empire Strikes Back, improvised. Um, you know, I don't know what the original script was, apparently it was rubbish, but they were able to make the scene work because they understood the motivation of the characters, they understood where the story was going and how the story was going. And so with all that understanding and this good basis of being able to sort of improvise, they can make something a lot better than what the original writer originally had in mind. And so I think for a lot of films in particular, you know, they will oftentimes have what they call safeties. And so they'll have what was originally scripted and they'll have a couple of, you know, um, backup lines just in case it's not working. And then after that, they'll just let the actors improvise and sort of knowing where the scene is going, they'll just say, okay, just work and play with it, see what comes up. And so, you know, when you're watching a lot of the making ofs or a lot of outtakes and things like that, you'll sometimes see the same scene performed 50 different ways, just as they're trying to find, well, what is the real dynamic? What is the real authenticity of this scene? And so by being able to improvise and not being so tied to a script, not being so rigidly shackled to having to perform it a certain way and letting them loosen up and seeing what happens, like, Robert Downey Jr. and all the Marvel films, like he would hide stuff on sets. Um, and so he, you know, walking through the scene as he was 
performing. He would be able to sort of interact with things. And all the actor actors had no idea what he was doing because he had gone in previously. And so he would be able to throw them and really add a different dynamic because he had such a great understanding of the character. That's what the character would do. And so therefore that's what he did. Yeah. And so I think it's definitely, I'd say even for serious actors, for people who are, you know, in these melodramas, you know, soap operas or whatever, having an understanding of improvisation, having an understanding of really knowing who the character is and where the scene is going, it can even help you quite paradoxically improvise a line that you've already rehearsed. And so even if it was the line you're always going to say anyways, if you come at it from an improvisational perspective, then the line is fresh and it's authentic and it's coming with a lot more emotion and a lot more weight than it would have been if you were just like oh and this is what I'm saying so cue the line and I've said the line and now we move on and so it's really about portraying the truth of the character and so like most improvisers whether they're aware of it or not they're really trying to find the truth of whatever character that they are portraying. That's funny it just makes me think you know what kind of tools in the toolbox did the Shakespearean actors have and how much improvisation happened because the language was so specific for some of those plays. I think with Shakespeare in particular, he had a very specific vision of how he wanted his plays to be performed. And so I don't wouldn't imagine that he would have let them have a lot of leeway. And so with a lot of the Shakespearean actors, they were very good at learning lines. Like they were very, very good at being able to sort of get a script and sort of 20, 30 minutes later, having remembered everything that was on the page and then being able to sort of spit it back out at an audience. So they'd learned these techniques of how to do a very quick turnaround. And I think a lot of that would have been that most of the actors would have, you know, stuck within very specific roles. And so they understood, well, okay, so I'm playing a jester. And so a jester usually says these things. And so when they're given the script, they can sort of get all the jester lines and say, yep, cool, that's me, that's me, that's me, cool, I'm learning it, okay, I'm speaking after this, I'm speaking after this, I'm speaking after this. And learning that, concentrating on that, being able to regurgitate that on stage, and then when they've finished with it, forgetting it and sort of opening up room for learning the next thing. So with Shakespeare in particular, even though it's performed today, it's very rigid and there's not a lot of room for improvisation. Whereas with other plays, other shows, Sometimes I've seen it, I'm not, I couldn't give you a specific example at the moment, but I have seen it definitely, this is the scene, these are the actors, they have to go from point A to point B, let them figure it out on their own. And so oftentimes in the rehearsal process, they'll be like, okay, cool, it's a wedding scene, we understand that this has to be said and this has to be said, so boom, 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 you guys are the actors, figure something out, they'll go away for an hour or two, work on it, come back, present it see how people feel about it, see how the director, the producer feel. You know, it might be like, cool, loving that idea, don't like that so much, change that, and we got the scene. And so it really depends on what situation you're in. And sort of a lot of it does come down to who's the director. Some directors love improvisation. They love leading their actors off the leash and just saying, go with it. Other directors have much more of a specific vision in mind. And they'll say, no, it has to be done specifically this way. You know, if you don't move in specifically this time, if you don't say specifically these words in this very specific manner, then it ruins the vision. It throws off the entire performance. And so it really does, like most things, depend on who you're working with and what style in particular they do. But even in, in terms of those situations, if you have an improvisational background, then even with the lines, even if you've said the same line 50 times before, it's the 50th night performing the exact same stuff. You can still make it fresh. You can still make it exciting. You can still bring something new every time, even if it is paradoxically the same thing you've always done. When they had a specific time period that had, you know, let's say the Shakespearean plays, I wonder what was going on in the underground world with improvisation, because it seems like it wasn't very accepted yet. I, I would say that in terms of, say, like the poorer districts, you probably would have been getting improvisation because they are not really being invited to go see Shakespeare. And so probably in pubs and back alleys and, you know, these poor rundown theatres who couldn't necessarily even afford the rights to perform certain plays. Often, I think, couldn't cite any specific sources, but I have seen it. If I was allowed to do a bit more research, I could probably find them. But there's definitely sort of knockoff plays and things that are sort of similar, but not quite, 
where they would sort of take the the gist of something and be able to sort of improvise around it to make it probably the cheap bootlegged movie versions of the time. And so I think it would have definitely something that probably would have been exclusive to the peasantry. You probably wouldn't see a lot of upper crust fancy to do people really enjoying improvisation up until they do. It really depends on the aristocracy. It depends on the favor of the king or the queen or monarch or whoever was the ruler at the time. And if they particularly happened to like improvisation, like the French king, Henry III, he loved it. And so it takes off. Uh, Queen Elizabeth would commission Shakespeare to write certain plays about things she wrote. And Shakespeare himself would write to the times. He, he would write concerning what was popular at the time. But of course, as we have, you know, years and years and years of history to look back on, it seems quite archaic. But back in his day, Shakespeare was very fresh. And so I think, imagine that Shakespeare, even as a writer, probably would have had a bit of improvisational zeal to him in terms of, oh, well, the monarch likes this. So how do I take something and directed at them but have them unaware that they're being targeted yes i think like a lot of his plays you can actually look at the social commentary of the time and actually find out oh wow king lear is actually really pointing at some modern issues or hamlet is really speaking to what was going on at the time and so shakespeare i think definitely had his you know hand on the pulse of society and was able to produce something that both the peasantry and and the upper crust could enjoy at the same time but he was, you know, quite rare in, in terms of being able to do that. Do we see that there's a universal component or do we actually see different types of improvisation around the world? Oh, there is multiple types of improvisation. It is something that has been inspired by some of these people like um, Johnstone, who were sort of pioneers in, in the field of really sort of pushing the boundary on what you could do with theatre. But when that cat's out of the bag... Everywhere will have their own local flavor, you know, depending on what's popular, depending on who is the, you know, really sort of influential players, it would have all developed. And so some people like rules. They like saying, well, okay, so this is the game and they'll sort of play specific games within sort of specific boundaries. Other people will be much more sort of, okay, cool. We have 90 minutes to fill and, you know, we're just going to see how it goes. And so it could be 90 minutes of one thing or, you know, nine, 10 minute things or whatever. And so I think the beauty of improvisation is, is that there isn't sort of any formal structure to it. So you don't have to, even though you can go to specific improv schools and a lot of acting schools will teach improvisation to varying degrees. It is one of those things of right now, if you got you know five friends and a theater you could improvise a show and do whatever you wanted and no one really could say well no that's not improv because as long as it's not scripted it's improvisation and so it, it's a very broad field of theater but then that's the beauty of it is you can tailor it to whatever your need is tailor it to yourself and your audience and your own specific style like I do an improvised podcast. We will just sit down and think, okay, what's the subject this week? Cool, we're talking about this. And then for the next half hour, we don't know what we're going to say next. And so podcasting is even like this new, relatively new field that you know improvisation has wormed its way into. And some podcasts who do improvisation will have sort of you know rigid structures. Some will be less so, and some will be completely chaotic. And it just depends on your style, depends on what you like. So yeah, if you don't like one thing, you can move on to the next. And there is just so broad a range of performers that you're bound to find someone you'll like. Oh, absolutely. That's the, <laughs> that's the absolute best part of the podcast is you can find anything from, you know, history to how to fix your house. So I was wondering too, when you're looking at improv, it seems as though there's many subcategories, as you've mentioned. Have you noticed if there seems to be almost like a cultural tendency? I think the only sort of limitation to the culture of improv is the culture of the people performing it. And so it really depends on the cultural biases that they bring into it. And so if they come from a specific background of performance, then that's probably what they'll bring to their improv. And so as you travel and as you, if you were to do a survey of the globe and sort of find different improvisational performances, you probably would be able to trace certain elements of it back to certain schools of thinking. 
but a lot of it would be very dependent on who's performing, where they're performing, even to a specific extent when they're performing, you know, what period of history. Yeah, and so I think like the only culture of improv is really the culture of the people performing it. Apart from that, it's not really tied to anything too specifically. Yeah, I guess that's true. There's so many different layers to that question. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention through your topic? I think one comment I would like to say is that, you know, in the current climate that we're living in, is that when people are a lot more free to move and a lot more, you know, society sort of starts getting back to normal, is that, you know, these theatre companies and stuff like that, like, they would be struggling during these lockdowns. And so a great way of getting out and reconnecting with society, again, would be to go see, you know, amateur performers, support local artists. And, you know, if there is any sort of improv groups in your neighborhood, in your sort of local area that you are available to see if they start doing shows again, I would definitely recommend it as just something different, a bit of entertainment. Instead of going to the movies, instead of giving your money to these big, massive mega corporations, some great entertainment, oftentimes, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, whenever they're performing, just go down to these local theater groups and just have a blast and and support these local up-and-comers because honestly I can say that there is some real talent among these people that you know I, I think the majority of people are just missing out on and so that's I w- I'd say you know my encouragement is if that if this topic has interested you if you have sort of thought oh that should be a bit of fun to see I guarantee you wherever in the world you live there will be a theater group performing improv and so go out support them maybe even join one yourself if you are so brave but it's something that I would really encourage people to get into. Absolutely. I mean, after everything you've explained, which I know is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. There's such a craft involved and we should really go see our our improv troops around locally. Yeah. Because honestly, like you never know, like some of these people, um, like Stephen Colbert, you know, famous comedian, he started off in an improv group. So you just never know who you'll find. Like you could see a performance, absolutely love it. You know, five, 10 years later, be watching a movie and be like, hey, I know that guy. Like um, in New Zealand, I cannot tell you his name but i remember going to a local theater performance uh they were doing improv one of the guys absolutely hilarious loved him then a few years later i was watching tv and there was this ad and he was on an ad and then about a year later hunt for the world people come out which is you know taika watiti massive film absolutely hilarious would recommend people to go see it and there it is this extra who's only in one scene i was like that guy i've seen him perform live on stage and he's really nice and so you just never know, you know, given the encouragement, given the support, where these people will end up. And so I think now he's doing film somewhere. I'm not quite sure, but he's, it's definitely a career that I've been sort of watching from the shadows. But yeah, just there is talent that is often underutilized in these people that you go out and you support. You could be the first in on something really big. And actually, I had asked you for a fun fact. If you don't mind sharing it, I'd love it if you could share it with us. Oh, yes. Um, So back when I was 17 in my last year of high school, I was crossing the road to get back to my home and I was hit by a taxi and broke my kneecap. I didn't know I'd broken my kneecap at the time. So when the ambulance arrives to take me to the hospital, me, like the fool that I am, get up and walk into the ambulance with a broken kneecap. And then they take me to the hospital, they examine me, they look at my neck and discover that my neck isn't broken, thank goodness, and then they release me home. Three days later, I'm still in a bit of pain, specifically in my left knee. And so I go to my GP, who then, as soon as she sees me walking in, she says, well, what's broken? I'm like, well, I don't know, but my knee sure hurts. It's only then that they take me to the hospital again, do a CT scan on my knee and find that my patella or knee bone has been broken in two. And so for three days, I've been walking, walking around on my kneecap, which is something I didn't think was possible. But as long as all the muscles are intact, you can still get motion. And so then they had to do major surgery and I was out for six months. But no, but I am the type of person who will walk on a broken knee. That is commitment. That is for sure. (laughs) And I generally like asking this question. So if you had a time machine and you didn't have to worry about, you know, sanitation or anything like that, and you came back safely... What would be the thing that you would either like to watch, partake in, or just try to understand a little better? What would be sort of the time in history that would be interesting to you? Oh, so there's two of them. One would be the Library of Alexandria. I'd love to be uh, able to go back and just read all the scrolls that we've lost to history. The second would be Coupe, who's uh, often attributed as the first person to set foot in New Zealand. Uh, I would love to be able to go back and visit 
the first landings of when people first arrived in this land and just the reaction that they would have had and how they sort of first settled in as a seafaring people to a more land-based culture. I think that would be actually fascinating, just the, you know, the pivotal shift of going from people usually so reliant on the sea coming to New Zealand, which is a significant landmass, and the adjustment to being much more dependent on the land. I think that would have been absolutely fascinating to be able to see and just to really examine. Those are really interesting answers. I love your answer about the Library of Alexandria. I mean, that is, that'd be really good to not have lost all of that. <laughs> yes. Although there is certain conjecture as to how relevant the scrolls lost actually were and whether other academics at the time had already learned or they could and so therefore the knowledge, though lost, wasn't specifically all that useful. It was sort of outdated or archaic at the time. So I have seen a lot of debates as to actually if we were to restore the Library of Alexander, how much would we actually gain in terms of knowledge or whether the scholars and academics at the time had already preserved it in later works. So it is sort of one of those sort of great questions of history. Absolutely. I wonder, there would be new interpretations on older manuscripts, perhaps, Oh, yeah, you'd definitely be having a much better understanding on primary sources and contemporary sources. And so whether we, we were just looking back and guessing what they would have had in them, but in terms of like the maps and the history and, you know, the, the science that all was preserved just would have been absolutely, I could probably spend the rest of my life just going through them all. Yeah. I mean, I guess that wraps it up. I feel like this was a five-minute chat, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't. This It was very interesting. Thank you so much, Waffles. I really appreciate you saying yes to being on the podcast and picking such a different and interesting topic. I know I say interesting a lot. I need to come up with better vocabulary. <laughs> like, in all honesty, this has been an honor. I love your podcast. I'm an avid listener myself. Uh, and so just getting that invite sort of just blew me away. I'm still shaking it still doesn't feel real um but just thank you very much for this opportunity i'm hoping you've enjoyed it as much as i have but just thank you so much for letting me be here yeah i, I just never thought you know about improv <laughs> so <laughs> yeah this is fantastic no i i really appreciate it oh, i appreciate it too cheers thank you very much thank you so much waffles that was such a different topic and I'm really happy you came here today to talk to us. I don't really have a book recommendation, but I agree that maybe we should go check out our local theater troops when we're able to. That's a great idea. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at historya or at historya.podcast. You can go to the website, historya.com. You can also rate me on your podcasting platform of choice. I appreciate all your efforts because apparently it helps people find me. So thank you. I also want to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the teachers that have shaped me. Without you, I would definitely not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.